Hello and welcome to episode 38 of the UK True Crime Weekly podcast. I'm Adam. Firstly, I'd like to thank this week's supporters on Patreon, Andrew Beaumont and Elizabeth Cloud. Thank you so much for your support, which is much appreciated. Bonus episode 5 will be heading your way in the next week. And of course, you've also got access to the previous four bonus episodes. This week's a bit different. I'm delighted to say that the episode has actually been researched by a listener to the show, Chris Wood, who is currently studying criminology and psychology at university. The story that he's chosen, it's a fascinating case spanning rugby league to Satanism. But before we start, let's set some context by looking at the music of the day. The UK charts were topped at this time by Yaz and the Plastic Population, remember them? Who enjoyed five weeks at the summit with The Only Way Is Up. And at number two, Kylie with The Locomotion. Now, if there's one song to hope you're in the bathroom for when played at a wedding, it's got to be this one. In the US charts, George Michael was number one with Monkey. And in the news, Iran and Iraq declared a truce after the eight-year war. Nelson Mandela was being treated for TB in hospital and Russian troops began to pull out of Afghanistan after a nine-year war. Also in Bolivia at this time, the US Secretary of State, Schultz, narrowly escaped an assassination attempt. This year also saw the first ever Red Nose Day with Lenny Henry raising £15 million. Lenny Henry, have we ever produced a funnier man? Tommy Cannon maybe? Lenny notwithstanding, the event itself is still going really strong with over £75 million raised in 2017. I wonder if this is something that you watch. It has been suggested by a number of listeners that if Steve Coogan is busy in 2018, I may step in with my worrying resemblance to Alan Partridge. Aha. In sports, the Edmonton Oilers traded Wayne Gretzky to LA Kings for $15 to $20 million dollars. In football, Everton paid £2.3 million for Tony Cotty from West Ham, which broke the national record set six weeks earlier by Paul Gascoigne's transfer. In true crime news, serial killer Anthony Arkwright was charged at the age of 21 with mass murder after hacking and butchering three people to death, including his grandfather, on a killing spree in Yorkshire. If you're not too familiar with this case, Check out the True Crime Enthusiasts excellent account at truecrimeenthusiasts.wordpress.com. This was also the year of the Lockerbie disaster, which saw Pan Am Flight 103 exploding over the Scottish town of Lockerbie and killing 270 people. No doubt like me, you've followed this case over the years and been amazed by the families of those lost in the disaster as they strive to make progress through the official cover-up to try and get to the truth. If you haven't read about the case recently, Take another look, as the families now support the appeal against conviction of the Libyan man originally found guilty of the bombing. It's an utterly amazing situation, and surely after all this time they at least deserve to know the truth. So on to today's case. Today we head to the east coast of England and to Hull, which is around 150 miles northeast of London. Best known to many for the Humber Bridge and its docks, Hull is the UK City of Culture for 2017. Hessel is a small town lying five miles to the west of Hull. It's one of those places you may very well have driven past without realising it. In fact, if you've been to Hull via the A63 or the Humber Bridge, you will certainly have passed it. Keith Slater had lived with his wife Carol in the town of Hessel after their marriage in 1975. They had two young children 
and Keith worked as a self-employed driving instructor and he was franchised out to a driving school. He'd been in this job for 16 months and he loved his work, but his other love, as well as his family, was rugby. And this was usually reflected in his work attire, often consisting of the Hessel Rugby Club tie and sweater. Keith's beloved Hessel Rugby Club was the focal point for the town's sporting community. Slats, as he was known, was one of the better players to have played for the club. He was a really good winger, but then he moved to wing forward when he got older because he wanted to get involved and he still loved the physical side of the game. When he tackled you, by all accounts, you knew you'd been tackled. Yeah, he was one of those. He was incredibly popular among his teammates and the opposition. Well, not all the opposition, of course, but most of the players that came up against him recognised in Slats a man who played the game the right way. Hull, of course, is a city huge on its rugby. Hull FC competed in the Super League, while Hull Kingston Rovers, well, they were relegated to the Championship in 2016, but nevertheless, both have a huge group of supporters. Just this last weekend, Hull FC took a huge following to the Challenge Cup semi-final victory over Leeds. The less said about their football team, however, the better. But then, for any club in the shadow of the UK's premier football club, the mighty Leeds United, life can be difficult. On August the 27th, Keith and his family had spent the morning enjoying leisure time in a wooded area known locally as Little Switzerland. Perhaps not the type of obvious area that you'd immediately think of in Hull, but it's a stunning and it's a popular spot. It was a pleasant late summer's day and a peaceful and idyllic setting for a family picnic. And this was a popular leisure venue which was used in the main by local people. However, this period of happy family time was in stark contrast to the dark events that would later unfold. I wonder if you think about this when you consider true crime. One of my best friends at university, Nick Lynch, was murdered in Brazil when he was just 23. That morning, in the north of the country in Manaus, Nick and his friends had been swimming in the wonderful waters of the Amazon and had actually commented that it was just like paradise. And then just a few hours later after leaving a bar, Nick was caught in a shootout between armed robbers and security and was hit by a stray bullet. Once more, I think it's something about true crime that appeals to us all. It's that contrast between happiness and tragedy and a reminder to us all, as if we need it, that danger always lurks just around the next corner. Keith's wife, Carol, had worked at a local home base store and following the family time in Little Switzerland, she began her shift there. The children were to stay with their grandparents that evening, which would give Keith and Carol some time to themselves once Carol had finished work. Keith picked up his wife at approximately 8.30pm. There had been a sale on at home base, which had attracted more people than normal, and Carol had had a particularly difficult and a fraught shift. When she left work, she was feeling a little agitated and harassed, you know, the way you do sometimes after work. Sometimes? <laughs> The couple arrived home to an empty house just before 9pm. Following dinner, they settled down to relax with just some easy-going TV, like so many millions of people do every evening. Perhaps still feeling a little jaded from her shift at work, Carol headed up to bed about 10.30pm, leaving Keith alone watching television. Keith didn't stay up for too much longer, and an hour or so later, he made his way to bed, unbeknown to him that it would be for the last time. Shortly after midnight, there was a loud knock on the door of their home. Carol was initially woken by this, 
and she peeled back the curtain to try and glimpse who was stood on the doorstep of their home at such a late hour. As many of us would in a similar situation, Carol experienced that feeling of dread deep in your stomach, that it may be the police. I mean, anyone calling at such a time would surely only be doing so to deliver news of some sort of emergency. Keith too was now awake, and so he got out of bed, put on a pair of trousers, and went downstairs to see who the mystery caller was. Meanwhile, at the bedroom window, Carol was still trying to identify who it was knocking at the door. As her husband opened the door, she heard the stranger ask, Keith Slater, in a stern and aggressive manner. Without warning, the stranger lurched forward at Keith and plunged a knife into his neck. Their sudden realisation of the horror unfolding on her own doorstep was now apparent to Carol, and amid the doubtless terror she was feeling, she managed to run downstairs to assist her husband. On seeing the violent struggle, Carol screamed and shouted at Keith's attacker and was eventually able to push the intruder outside. Even in this moment of horror, Carol was aware that a principal feature of him was his starey, almost crazed eyes. When he'd finished his attack, those eyes came to rest on Carol, who was desperately trying to help her husband. The attacker didn't immediately flee as if admiring his handiwork before disappearing into the night. Carol desperately managed to carry Keith onto the sofa inside the house and shut the door. It later transpired that a couple had heard Carol's screams from a block away, but assumed that they were the effects of a nearby party. After all, it was the beginning of the August bank holiday weekend. Carol desperately tried to stem the heavy bleeding from Keith's neck wound, but she could sense he was growing ever weaker, and tragically, the young father of two's life ebbed away in his wife's arms in the early hours of that August morning. As news of the murder filtered through, the small local community were understandably horrified that such an appalling and seemingly unprovoked attack could happen in their town. As we so often hear on this podcast, this just wasn't the sort of thing that happened in such a friendly place, and especially upon the doorstep of a popular man such as Keith. His friends and family were, they were just puzzled. Keith was an incredibly popular man, and no one could think of any apparent reason why someone would have wanted him dead. The man tasked with leading the case was Senior Investigating Officer, Detective Superintendent Barry Lilly. Barry and his team set about uncovering a motive for the attack and discovering just why somebody had killed Keith. In the weeks after the murder, lines of inquiry centred around sightings of Keith with a young blonde woman, described as stunning by witnesses and they'd apparently been seen several times between February and July. This prompted suspicions that Keith was perhaps having an affair, and his attacker may have been the wronged husband or boyfriend of the woman. However, this line fizzled out and eventually came to nothing. With little else to work on and with six weeks having passed since the murder, on the 6th of October 1988, Barry made an appeal on the BBC One television programme Crime Watch UK. His appeal for help from the public was assisted by a reconstruction of events from the fateful night in the hope that new information may be brought to light and help unearth the killer. Barry asserted that whoever had committed the murder would have been covered in blood due to Keith's profuse bleeding from the wound. You would think that such a man would hardly have been inconspicuous and someone must either have seen him or at least seen his bloody clothing, maybe a friend or a partner who had spent time with the murderer, would have seen something suspicious. Surely someone knew something, 
But despite the appeal and a reward for information leading to conviction being offered by the Serious Crimes Assistance Reward Fund, still no suspect was found. But although Crime Watch didn't solve the case, it did provide detectives with an initial breakthrough. Police were contacted by Barry Williams, a man completely unrelated to Keith Slater. Barry had a property in Surrey which he rented out to Patrick Brown. Patrick Brown's older brother Martin had been working in the Faroe Islands, but he had decided he wanted to move back to Britain and join his younger brother in Surrey. So Barry Williams had offered Martin Brown lodgings in return for him decorating the house, as Martin was adept at such work, a skill he apparently learnt from his father. These terms were considered agreeable to Martin Brown, but he struggled to find other work to occupy himself, and as a result he spent much of his time frequenting the local pubs and smoking dope with Patrick, landlord Barry Williams, and a mutual friend named Joe Henry. The Brown brothers and Joe Henry soon found they shared another common interest behind alcohol and smoking cannabis, devil worship. Incorporated with this was a fascination with tarot cards and numerology. If you don't know much about numerology, basically speaking it's a study of the supposed occult significance of numbers and this would prove vital in solving this case. So when Barry Williams contacted the team at Crime Watch, he informed them that the brothers had, in his view, an unhealthy interest in numerology, tarot cards and the occult. Furthermore, he told the police he'd overheard the two brothers discussing the evil man Slater and even referring to Keith as an evil spirit. Clearly, this information now was of significant interest to the police. Martin Brown was subsequently established as a suspect in the killing and questioned by police immediately in 1988 and also in 1990. But although the police had strong suspicions... They had no evidence to charge Brown, it was all circumstantial, and so he was released. A free man, Martin Brown was able to continue living his life, and he did just that. On a night out in London, he had met Andrea Montagu, an Australian, who was working in London as a clerk at the Australian High Commission, and after dating for a while, decided to emigrate. Was this Brown's decision, I wonder? Maybe hoping to escape a guilty conscience? Whatever the circumstances of the move, by the time they did indeed move, they were already married with two sons. I've mentioned numerous times here my love for Australia, especially Sydney, and what a great environment it is to bring up children. So, you can fully understand why the pair had decided to move out to Australia to raise their family. Martin Brown and his wife Andrea didn't choose to live in one of the big cities. Instead, they preferred the small town of Cooma in New South Wales which is a small town lying approximately 70 miles south of the capital, Canberra. It seems as though married life in a new country suited Brown, as he began to live a far more refined and less chaotic lifestyle than he'd led in Britain. Seemingly settling in as the model immigrant, he launched a relatively successful business as a painter and decorator. He lived a quiet life and didn't get in trouble with the police at all. Andrea had also found work at a primary school near to their home, and she enjoyed teaching there. With Brown loving his new life, literally across the other side of the world, the days of being questioned by police about a murder were now over, and had faded into a distant memory. But in the UK, the search for Keith's killer continued, with his friends and family still living the nightmare of not knowing every day of their lives. With the passing of time, 
there also came a change in direction in the pursuit of justice. By the year 2000, Detective Lily had retired, which left Chief Superintendent Colin Andrews to head up the case. Coincidentally, Colin had been a young sergeant working under Lily at the time of the murder, and he was actually involved in much of the painstaking work in assembling early pieces of evidence, so he did have some good knowledge of the case. He also had at his disposal greater technological advances, and this would help him in trying to bring the killer to justice. As you probably know, the huge computer database known as Homes had been introduced to all police forces in England and Wales following the incompetence that characterised the Yorkshire Ripper inquiry. The theory was this new home system would allow police to cross-reference information instantaneously. As we have covered in other episodes of this podcast, this didn't work quite as they'd hoped. There was a huge cultural issue with expecting detectives who'd worked often by instinct to rigorously use this system. But in this case, the Holmes database, coupled with advances in DNA technology, would be crucial in finally detecting Keith's killer. In 2002, a cold case review was launched and finally, a major breakthrough came to light. Many pieces of evidence had been uncovered at the initial crime scene, but due to the limited DNA, not too much could be done with this evidence at the time. Two pieces of evidence in particular, found only hours after the killing, now took on extra significance. A woman walking her dog hours after Keith was killed on August 27th, 1988, had found a piece of blood-stained tissue paper on the escape route, which was thought to have been left by the mystery attacker. This piece of evidence was clearly of immediate interest. The second piece, perhaps not so obviously important, was a Swan Vesta matchbox, which was found around a mile away by a man looking after a derelict property. This seemingly innocuous find was inscribed with a series of numbers, the significance of which, if any, wasn't immediately apparent to detectives. But by 2002, the advances in DNA technology enabled police to establish a link between the bloodstained tissue and Martin Brown, who, as we know, was a suspect in the initial inquiry, but was released and now living a new life in Australia. And the matchbox? The one with the random numbers scribbled on it? Well, when they looked more closely at this, Brown's DNA was also discovered. Furthermore, the matchbox actually revealed lots more, as it was considered evidence of possible numerology, which also implicated Martin Brown, due to his fascination with the subject. And it's easy to see why when we examine the numbers that were found on the matchbox. The first was number 32, the number of Keith's house, 32 Bonacord Road. Next was 1821. 964, the date of Brown's birthday, 18th of February 1964, and finally 268198, the date leading up to the killing, 26th of August 1988. Now, was this all merely a macabre coincidence, or was it a chilling prelude to murder? If the latter, should police have made the link earlier? But then again, even if they made this link, was this really proof of anything? In any case, Humberside police had Brown firmly in their sights and set about providing justice for Keith and his family and friends. With Brown immersing himself in life down under, police needed to extricate him to stand trial and they duly managed to do this in 2004. The illusion of Brown's squeaky clean lifestyle and apparent hard work and demeanour was shattered 
when detectives arrived in May 2004 to arrest him for the murder of Keith Slater. As if to emphasise how well Brown had managed to blend into everyday life in New South Wales, a local resident of Cooma said upon his arrest, It was a bit of a shock to everybody. It's a small community and that sort of thing just doesn't happen here. Sounds familiar, huh? Well, here's the thing. No doubt we will hear it again this week when someone is murdered in a town near you. So despite having evaded justice for the best part of 20 years, Brown finally stood trial for Keith's murder at Sheffield Crown Court in 2007. Martin Brown's defence as he took to the stand was that he believed he'd been framed by his own brother. Peter Collier, prosecuting, asked Brown how he felt about his younger brother Patrick. I'm not very pleased he hasn't written to me, he said, referring to the time that Brown had spent on remand. Are you angry with him? Collier asked. I'm wondering why I'm standing here, yes, Brown replied. Some argued that this summed up the, well, the manipulative arrogance of Brown. Collier told Brown that lots of pieces of evidence pointed to him, but he maintained his stance through the trial that his brother had set him up. When asked if he could think why Patrick would frame him, he couldn't give a reason. He stated that his taking the rap while his family are on the other side of the world was hard to cope with. I'm sure the irony isn't lost on you here. We have Brown's total lack of empathy to the irreversible damage that had been caused to the Slater family back in 1988. Brown may have found it hard that his family were on the other side of the world while he was in court, but for Carol Slater and her two children, they have to live out the rest of their lives knowing they'd never see their husband or father again. So although Brown was unable to understand why he was in the frame for the killing, the jury were hearing exactly why he ought to be considered the prime suspect. They heard that Brown, along with his brother Patrick and Joe Henry, would hold bizarre ceremonies in the woods in attempts to summon the spirits of Merlin, Sir Lancelot and Lucifer. Such behaviour would have been extremely unnerving to anyone that witnessed it. Can you imagine seeing such an event as he walked home eating your chips after a game of dominoes at the Dog and Duck? Maybe this is something that never happens near you. Something else, that is. However, Joe Henry was adamant that by taking part in such events, he could summon the devil into his own body. Whilst in such an apparent possessed state, Henry was heard to make references to the evil Slater and that bastard Slater. Brown was known to have taken a bus ticket from London to Hull on August 16th, 1988, a journey he said he was making for a hospital appointment. Brown claimed he arrived in Hull at 4.30pm, but police believed it was two hours earlier. At some point that evening, a man called at Hessel Rugby Club, where Keith Slater played, and asked if he was there. Another ticket brought for the same travel agents in Surrey was issued for August 26th, the day before Keith Slater died. In further revelations made in court, it transpired that Joe Henry had had an affair with Keith's wife Carol in 1987, the year prior to the murder. The pair had worked together, but Carol ended the affair after five months. Finally, this provided the clear link and possible motive for the seemingly random killing. So did Joe Henry hire Brown to commit this cowardly act in response to Joe Henry's dislike that Carol Slater had ended things and gone back to her husband? Certainly this would be incredibly extreme, particularly given that Brown had never even met Keith before, and seeing as it was Henry that had been involved with Carol and not Brown, 
who had hardly been enraged with jealousy. But the three men were engulfing themselves in a shared hatred for Keith, becoming obsessive over both he and Carol, and developing a crazed delusional belief that Keith was in some way satanic and had to die. And all the while, Karen and Keith had no idea that this was happening. On the 5th of February 2007, nearly 20 years since that awful August evening, a jury found Martin Brown unanimously guilty of the murder of Keith Slater. Justice Wilkie jailed Martin Brown for life and ordered that he serve a minimum of 13 years. The judge said, He was a man you did not know, had never met, and yet you travelled 200 miles to kill on the doorstep in front of his wife. The judge continued, asserting that probably no one will ever know by what warped process of reasoning you came to kill him. Interestingly, at this point he also suggested that after the amount of time that elapsed between the murder and sentencing, perhaps Brown himself no longer even knew why he committed the murder. This vague notion seems to sum up the random and haphazard nature of the offence. The fact that Brown probably no longer even knew why he'd killed Keith Slater. Furthermore, did he ever really understand why he'd carried out such an act? The judge concluded that Brown had acted under the influence of warped beliefs shared of his brother and Joe Henry, which led to some kind of disturbed insistence that Keith Slater had to die. In commending the powers that finally brought Brown to justice, the judge added that thanks to the sharp eyes of the cold case review team and the scientific evidence found, Martin Brown's Australian getaway was eventually halted and he was hauled back across the world to face justice in the UK. Following Brown's sentencing, it was also revealed that the jury had convicted him without hearing that Brown had actually confessed to the killing years afterwards to his own mum. Brown had told his mum in 1992 that he'd been the mystery attacker four years previously, but she was having treatment for a mental illness at the time and the police, although made aware of the confession, they felt they couldn't rely on her as a witness. And Brown's defence had successfully managed to argue that her evidence should not be admitted at this trial. Do you think this raises an interesting issue? Just how much information should a jury be privy to in order to help achieve justice, but without jeopardising a trial and ensuring it remains fair? In this case, the jury didn't hear this information, but they still found Brown guilty. But what if they hadn't? Should juries be given all the information, no matter how tenuous it may be? To me, it's the same with asking juries not to look up the case on the internet. In reality, surely this concept is just outdated now, just like our ridiculous Sunday trading laws and other parts of life that have been just transformed by the access to information with social media. Following the sentence, the detective who'd been there right from the outset, Colin Andrews, described Brown as a cold and calculating killer who had not shown one ounce of remorse. He asserted that this sends out a message to other murderers. We don't close murder files. We will continue to investigate and we will catch you. A statement read outside court on behalf of the Slater family described Keith as a wonderful husband, father, brother and friend who will always be remembered and missed by everyone who knew him. We are glad that justice has been served at last and hope we can move on with our lives. In 2012, Martin Brown admitted, for a second time, the murder, this time telling detectives that he did indeed deliver the fatal blow to Keith, but also he did not act alone. This was, and still is, the stance that the police take to this day. They're quite sure that others were involved in planning this killing. Indeed, the investigation is still ongoing, 
Joe Henry was in fact later arrested and held on suspicion of conspiracy to commit murder and soliciting another to commit murder. But he was released with no charge and he maintains to today that he had nothing to do with Keith's murder and certainly did not encourage Martin Brown saying, I didn't kill Keith Slater. I feel guilty even though I've done nothing wrong because I was having an affair with his wife. But the affair ended nearly a year before Keith was killed. I had absolutely nothing to do with his death. And I was shocked when I found out it was him. Carol and I worked together. I only met Keith two or three times, but he seemed a really nice bloke. I didn't have a problem with him at all. Reading through some of the forums about the occult in the UK, the general view I picked up is that Joe Henry is guilty of holding a death ritual, wishing Keith Slater dead. But wishing someone dead is not a crime. And after doing the ritual, he did nothing that can be convictable. It's just that one of the participants of the death ritual took this too seriously and actually committed the crime. Whether this is true or whether Joe Henry had more of a direct involvement in the crime remains to be seen. In Brown's confession to police, it's believed that he also gave them the name of a man that organised the killing and even provided him with the murder weapon. However, detectives in Hull say that as things stand, there is not enough evidence to put anybody else for a court but the investigation is still ongoing and under review. So what do you make of what you've heard today? Clearly, however you look at it, Keith was the innocent victim, and we must all feel for his children growing up without their dad who provided such a strong role model. And what of his wife, Carol? It must be devastating that she feels in any way that her affair led to her husband's murder. As she told the jury, she had an affair with Joe Henry while working with him at a care home in 1987, when she and Keith were going through a rough patch, but it was over in a few months. Whatever your moral views about affairs, this does happen all the time, and most people just move on with their lives afterwards. It is of course no justification for any sort of crime, let alone murder. And what of the occult side of the story? Ever since I first heard of probably the most famous person in the occult world in the UK, Alastair Crowley, I was fascinated by his writings. Back in his day, the tabloids regularly described him as the most wicked man alive and other similar titles. Think of it as a combination of how today's tabloids would describe a a Philip Green slash Mike Ashley mix. But I've always stayed away from involvement with this part of life or even tarot cards. Some people really believe in it and for some it's all just harmless fun. And I guess for most that is true. But my concern is that some people just can't leave it there and it then becomes pivotal in their lives and what you or I see as fun can then take on much more sinister meaning. This is what appeared to happen in this case to Martin Brown. And for some people today who are feeling alienated and disenfranchised with life, I wonder if it's only a matter of time before we read about a similar case in the courts. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. A huge thank you again to Chris Wood for bringing this case to our attention. If you'd like to contact Chris, please just let me know and I'll put you in touch. Please come and discuss this case at our Facebook group. You can find all the details at uktruecrime.com and please support the show at patreon slash uktruecrime where for just £3 a month you can access four bonus episodes with another coming in the next week. That is all for me for this week, so until we speak again on Tuesday, cheerio. And remember, even that podcast you listened to which you hated 
It's still someone's pride and joy, so please don't give it the one star and a bad review. Just move on. Life really is too short. Stay classy.